0: A Living
1: History production. This is the Living History podcast. Broadcasting live across the airwaves.
0: Hello everyone, welcome to Living History and today we are talking... Australian films, but not the latest blockbusters. We are going back in time to one of the original Australian films, The Sentimental Bloke. It was first released in 1919 and a hundred years later it's had a whole new lease of life thanks to the National Film and Sound Archives. That's where I am at the moment. I'm in the National Film and Sound Archives in Sydney and joining me to talk about The Sentimental Bloke is Elena Guest. Thank you for joining us on the show.
1: Really happy to be here, Matt. Thank you.
0: So tell us about The Sentimental Bloke. It's, It's... It's an iconic movie from the earliest days of Australian cinema. Just give us a little bit of history, paint the picture of what this movie was all about.
1: Yeah, so as you say, it was made, well, it was actually released in 1919. The initial screening of it actually happened in 1918 uh, in Adelaide and then commercially released in Australia in 1919. So it's one of our earliest silent feature films, directed by Raymond Longford and co-produced, co-written by Lottie Lyle, who was his partner in life as well as in um, filmmaking. They are a bit of a powerhouse duo at the time uh, in Australian film. The film has a bit of a chequered history. Uh, it was originally a nitrate print. I don't know if you know about nitrate. It's very volatile. Tell us, tell us about that. <laughs> it's a very volatile medium, uh, and if it catches fire end of story for everything really so we have specific nitrate vaults in Canberra that we store nitrate film in Um, initially the film was with the National Australian Library National Library of Australia (laughs) uh, before the archive actually existed and after a series of fires down there um, the print was rescued and and saved uh, but was missing a reel so when the film was made it was a box office hit in Australia but it was also released in the US uh, under a different name, completely edited, a lot of strain in the intertitles taken out because the US audience uh, wouldn't understand it. But the film itself was based on The Songs of a Sentimental Bloke, which was written by C.J. Dennis in 1915, and that was a hit at the time as well when that was released, that poetry. So they made it into a film. It was released in Australia by E.J. Carroll, who went on to East Queensland based at the time, went on to become Birch Carol Coyle, I think, in Queensland and released by Southern Cross Films in Australia. Uh, Raymond Longford and Lottie Lyle, as I said, wrote and produced it. It was shot in and around Sydney. It was initially in the script for Melbourne, but they decided to shoot it in Sydney. So there's a lot of historic and vintage footage of, say, Central Station before the clock tower was built. And the trams where they, they are now... <laughs> Also back then, William Malu. Uh, there's a scene where he's um, coming out of jail, which is the old Darlinghurst jail, uh, Botanic Gardens. They shot illegally in the Botanic Gardens at the time; they didn't get permits. Uh, so it's it's very um, Sydney centric and of its time. It's the story of the sentimental bloke, Bill, played by Arthur. I'm never sure how to say his surname. I've heard it said so many different ways. I think it's Tow Chair whose grave is actually in the Waverley Cemetery I discovered the other week. And uh, the story of him and his love interest, Doreen, played by Lottie Lyle. He's a bit of a larrikin. That's a word that's commonly used with the sentimental bloke. It's a bit of biffo involved, a bit of drinking, a bit of gambling. Um, And his love for Doreen puts him back on the straight and narrow. But it's not an easy easy path to um, romantic success. So it's also a bit of a Romeo Juliet story, but it's not without its comedic elements, so it's also a bit of a rom-com as well. And he has his mate Ginger Mick, played by Gilbert Emery in the film, who is a bit of a scallywag himself and tends, so he's got Dorian on one side steering him to the path of happily married life, and on the other side he's got Ginger Mick pulling him away into the, into the realms of Two Up and Pubs.
0: Tell us about the Australian film industry at this time, because we're talking right at the end of the First World War. You wouldn't think people were too distracted by the cinema at this time with everything going on. How many movies were being made? Was Australia producing a lot of content at this time? Yeah,
1: look, it was quite prolific. And E.J. Carroll at the time was actually uh, producing films as well. So Raymond Longford went on to make another two films around the, I guess you'd call it a trilogy, around that bloke sort of uh, theme, including a sequel with Ginger Mick from The Sentimental Bloke. Uh, so we saw films like On Our Selection coming out around that time. Uh, there was a, uh, there was a different sort of uh, sense about uh, women, I think, in film at that time. So Lottie Lyre wasn't actually credited for a lot of the work that she did in those films. But we also saw um, films like The Squatter's Daughter come out. So it was quite a prolific prolific time for films. But the interesting thing about the bloke is that it's the only surviving full length feature from that from that
0: time. So these movies were being shown in cinemas, silent movies with, as you say, the, the title screens in between with the dialogue because obviously they're silent films with no sound. Was this the sort of thing with live music playing yeah, alongside right. as well? Yeah, that's right. It must have been quite an experience for people to, particularly in wartime, for people to take a break from the... Horrors of what they were reading in the newspaper to go out and, and, and have a night out with the family at the
1: pictures. I think I think that's right, and I think uh, history you you would know as well that um, in times of war, entertainment is a really valuable part of the economy, and people do tend to want to have some relief if they've got the money to spend to go to the movies or go and see a show or whatever. So, and even even in the bloke, you'll see there's a big banner on Central Station about war bonds and. So it is of a specific time, but yes, I think that's right about wartime.
0: So the the movie was a commercial hit in Australia, but it had less success with the the attempt to transition it to the American market, didn't it? Tell us a little bit more about that.
1: It it worked well in the UK, is my understanding, and the reviews were supportive and people thought it was a fine piece of cinema. Um, In the US, it was a different story. They shortened it. They thought it was too long. They moved scenes around in it because they thought our narrative style wasn't working for their audience. They gave it a different title and they changed all the intertitles into American English <laughs> rather than the Strine.
0: Was it actually ever released in America? How did yes, it, do it was. It didn't market? do
1: anything. It was no good.
0: So it was, it wasn't, it was not a success no, in America? No, not a
1: success. So mainly just Australia and the UK. Okay.
0: Where did Australia sit in the hierarchy of movie making at this time? Because Hollywood was already well established and... Was it considered that Australia was making good quality pictures that were making a contribution to the film world?
1: Yeah, look, I'm not really sure about uh, how many Australian films were released overseas, in the US in particular. I know a lot of our films went back to the UK, obviously, because of our ties to the UK. But as far as the U.S. box office is concerned, I'm not really sure about.
0: I think that's reflective of the fact that uh, Australian movies weren't doing a lot in America, I can imagine, at the time.
1: Potentially like our Australian actors are doing now. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so we've got this wonderful picture, but then it it fell off the radar a bit, really. Well, I mean, it's a century ago that this film came out. Silent movies have disappeared. Why are we now talking about this movie again in 2020?
1: So there's been several reconstructions of the film along the way. Initially, um, Tony Buckley, who's a well-known Australian producer, uh, re-spliced the original film in the 50s uh, and it was screened at the Sydney Film Festival in, I think, 1955 from memory to great response. Uh, So it still had an audience then, as we hope it still does now as well. There was another iteration of it. So the thing about Nitrate is that you couldn't, duplicate the prints, the nitrate outcome, unless you had two cameras filming side by side, whereas as we move along and the technology has shifted, we can now duplicate prints and and make tube negatives and everything else. Uh, So the archive, the National Film and Sound Archive, has multiple components for all the films, pretty much, that we hold in the collection that are complete. In the 1990s, uh, there was the opportunity for the National Film and Sound Archive to screen a film at the Portononi Silent Film Festival, which is the major one internationally. And they looked at how they could duplicate the sentimental bloke to screen it at that festival. And the tints and tones as well in the film. So given the technology at the time, the tints and tones were food colouring. And that, was that, that process that began in the 90s continued into the early 2000s, where in 2004 a full reconstruction, uh, photochemical reconstruction happened of the film with Atlab Deluxe and there were several people in the archive that partnered with them to produce that film which premiered again at the Sydney Film Festival in 2004 to a full house with live accompaniment by Jen Anderson and the Larrikins. But that process was all photochemical with acetate outcomes. We're now in a digital age. So the technology has shifted again and the majority of cinemas these days do not screen 35mm prints. It's all a digital cinema package, a DCP. So now we're at the stage where if we want that film to have a life beyond 35mm, we've also got a 16mm print as well in the, national, um, the non-theatrical lending collection, but to have a life beyond what it's had to date, we now have to do digital restorations and that's the intent of the NFSA Restores Program is to bring in the original components or whatever we have to scan those, to grade them, to clean them digitally. It's a 4K scan. And then we have digital outcomes as well that we can use into the future. It must
0: be quite a challenge for the archives, this constant updating of technology, because you mentioned in that excellent explanation several times over the decades there's been a shift in technology which has meant that the work that had been done before now needed to be updated and you needed a new version of the film that must be a constant challenge for everything you're doing to preserve these old archival materials but still have them accessible for people as technology evolves.
1: Yeah and that's actually one of the main objectives of most of the cultural sector that have collections at the moment is to digitize the collections that they've got to make sure that we're keeping up with technology to make sure that it's accessible but also to preserve it into the future. And as you suggest, that technology changes all the time. So even within cinema exhibition, the ways of screening cinema back in 2009 we were talking about earlier, it was a much lower quality file and not so encrypted as they are now with the DCPs coming from Hollywood to protect from piracy. Um, so even in the last 10 years the technology within cinemas has changed completely the you may have seen there was an article about the demise of the the projectionist now because it's all automated and I understand that soon you know there'll be the potential for films to actually come down the pipe Um, so you won't even be shipping around drives or anything anymore all the cinemas will be connected hopefully by broadband and it will all just be automated from a live central streaming to operated, the cinemas. That's amazing. Yeah, central operating unit.
0: So let's talk about this film specifically because I've seen the, uh, the the new and improved version, and it's quite extraordinary. And 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 you also showed me a wonderful file which compared the original to the 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 enhanced version that we're going to see now. Um, just extraordinary the difference. I, I could I, when I was watching it, I actually had this strange sort of feeling. When people try to recreate old black and white films, they never look authentic because the quality is too high that was almost the feeling I had I had to keep saying to myself you are watching an original century-old film because the enhancement is absolutely extraordinary
1: that's that's very interesting that comment because part of the restoration process for us is restoring it to its original to how it looked when it was first released so we're not interested in fixing things up we're not interested in sharpening out of focus sequences or shots it has to be as close to the original as possible so in some instances if there's subtitles we have to match the font. With this we were lucky enough that we could scan the material we had in the vault here. Plus we got a copy of the US version from George Eastman Museum in New York in Rochester. They did a very high quality 4K scan of their um, master element, fine grain master element out of their vaults over there and we've we've had to put those two components together to this final pro- project. So you will see discrepancies they're very slight between the two source components but they are still visible but we're very conscious that we don't push it too far i have seen some 4k restorations from international sources that as you say they they look they're quite hard and and do look a bit videoey and and we try not to push it that far when we're going through the process but also with very old content like this uh, our print that we scanned not great quality compared to the US, you can only push it so far and then you start to lose detail, you know, the blacks start to look a bit funny, it starts to not look at all like what the original should look like. After that, we put the tints and tones in digitally, Uh, so we have to match those colours um, with the new technology on the software that the post-production house, we work with Vandal on this, this project use. You can match it in one place in the film, and then it will go through and identify the other places and put that same. So you're not constantly having to find that color; it does it throughout the film for you.
0: It's just it's extraordinary technology, and the results are quite amazing. I thought expressions on faces were the thing that I that, that really came out. That when they do those close-up shots, you can really see the expressions on the faces, yeah. probably much better than people could when the film came out a hundred years ago in the in the cinema.
1: Well, the nitrate. Actually, has that level of detail in it. Our print that we scanned didn't, but things that stood out for me was detail in bricks in the background, and detail in the horses' manes, and as well as the faces. You know, it's the little things that you just you don't even notice until it's 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 um, been graded.
0: So the film's been upgraded, enhanced. We've got this new version of it now. Where are people going to be able to see it?
1: So it's screening at the Westpac Open Air Cinema with a live uh, performance by Paul Mack, who's been engaged to write a score.
0: Let's talk a little bit about that because the music was a... I, I love this about the silent film era. The music was a completely separate yet... Crucial element: Absolutely. the music performed live yep. while the movie was playing, like a yep. combination of a movie and a concert at the same time. Tell us about Paul Mack and the, and and what's going to happen with the uh, the score.
1: Yeah, so so even though the film is silent, the experience of the film is not. Uh, so you wouldn't ever see the film without an accompaniment of some sort. Uh, so for this iteration of the film, we we wanted to find uh, somebody that was not traditionally associated with silent film somebody that might bring a new perspective to the film somebody that was contemporary but who also had an understanding and a connection with the sort of uh, experience that we were trying to create uh, Westpac open air when we pitched the film to them they they thought fantastic we'd love to be part of that it's not what they usually do and when we suggested that Paul Mac might be somebody that would be interested in doing the music you know they were they were particularly interested in in, in having that. Uh, Paul is an electronica, composer, musician, performer, artist. And with this film, when he saw it, he had a bit of a different response to it. And he tells the story about he's got an upright piano in his kitchen, as you do, that one morning he was in the kitchen and he was thinking about the film and he heard a theme for Bill, the bloke in the film, and he built it from there. So he's used mainly a woodwind bass for his composition it's 100 minutes of music because it's not like a film you might see these days where there's dialogue or sound effects supporting the dialogue or even no music at all. He's done 100 minutes end to end of music, which is enormous. And it's it's you can identify the themes coming through with the different characters. He's got a real sensibility. There's a bit of a scene there with Bill and the cops, which is a little bit keystone copish, and he gets he gets all of that within the film so he's he's done the score he's mixing it at the moment he will perform live with a ensemble of musicians at westpac open air on the 15th of february and the score will then be on the dcp so we'll have two dcps the digital cinema package one silent one with his score and in the future if people would like paul to come and do a live performance i'm sure he'd be open to it
0: is the film going to be distributed australia wide or is it only going to be at the uh, open air cinema
1: we do have a couple of other screenings locked in. Uh, so there's one happening up at Penrith in June with a separate composition. Uh, there's also an international UK premiere at Falkirk at Hipfest, which is the silent film festival in Scotland. They've also they've got a, they're working with an Australian composer based in London for that premiere. And um, we're in negotiations for other screenings as well, but with all the NFSA restores content. We've got 30 films now that we've digitally restored. It's available through us if people want to screen it or with score, without score. Oh, and there's a screening in Canberra as well because we have a cinema in Canberra called ARC and it'll be on there in April.
0: Elena, why is it important that we go back and, and, and restore these old films? And I mean, in this day and age of electronics and social media and people moving at the speed of light, why do we even care about these old movies? Why are they important?
1: For me, I think it's really important to be able to see a film as it's meant to be seen, with not on YouTube <laughs> that's, you know, seven generations from the original that is not great quality in either picture or audio. It's a sense of culture. I, I have a daughter and it's important for her, I think, to see that we have a history, an audiovisual history. And I think it influences people's perspective of who they are and how we are in the contemporary world as well as how we were back then but without something like the National Film and Sound Archive you know we have vaults down in Canberra humidity controlled temperature controlled there's documents there's artifacts there's photos audio sound recordings broadcast material all of that would be lost if we if we didn't exist and I, we, we have to maintain that sense of history and heritage and Australian culture where we've come from.
0: And what's it like for you personally to be working in an environment where you're constantly exposed to these treasures from the past?
1: I feel, as you mentioned earlier, I feel very honoured to be a part of this and I feel that the NFSA Restores program in particular is a really important one and enables me to be a part of history. In a way, indirectly, because the other thing about the restorations—not with the bloke, but with more contemporary ones—is we get to work with the creative teams as well. So you know, we can work with Bruce Beresford and Sue Millikan in Dion Beebe and you know Bridget Iacon. You know, all these filmmakers who have a very strong um, filmmaking uh, history with in Australia to bring back their original vision for a film, and that is amazing. And then to show it to an audience, we did a documentary called Rocking the Foundations, which is about the union movement. Pat Fisk made that. And seeing that with a very young audience was incredible. Like they just had no clue about the history of the union movement, and particularly in today's society where unions are a bit different to how they have been in the past. There was a standing ovation at the end of the screening because they just it clicked, they kind of got it, and without I'm not saying without the restoration program but without the NFSA, some of those connections just couldn't be made.
0: Well, it's really wonderful work you're doing not just on the sentimental bloke but on all the uh, all the material you have here in the archives. It's really wonderful that it's being brought again to a, to an audience and new audiences. Are able to accept it And I'd say to everyone Who's listening um, Go and see The Sentimental Bloke If you have the opportunity At the Open Air Cinema Or one of the other screenings Go and check it out Because as I said I've seen it And it's, it's, it's a window To the past It's really A really wonderful thing So Elena Thank you so much For joining us To talk about The Sentimental Bloke
1: You're welcome Thank you